You're listening to Living Lab Radio. I'm Heather Goldstone. Does science advance one funeral at a time? It may sound macabre, but it's a serious question for some researchers. In fact, it's the title of a recent study published in the American Economic Review. Joining me now is lead author Pierre Azoulay. He is the International Programs Professor of Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Welcome to Living Lab Radio. Thank you for having me. This research is based at least loosely on an idea known as Planck's Principle, which dates back to the early 20th century Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Planck. What is Planck's Principle? So Planck was very cynical about the way in which science progresses, and he was frustrated by the slow acceptance of his of the revolution that he had brought to physics, which was the revolution of quantum mechanics. And you may remember that Albert Einstein was actually very slow at accepting and, in fact, never really fully accepted uh, hmm. the principles of this sort of paradigm shift in physics. And so that was his uh, sort of cynical quip that, you know, maybe what was needed is for the, the, the generation of uh, scholars who had been trained in a different tradition to simply... Uh, sort of pass away before suddenly uh, sort of young people could take, take up the mantle and sort of push physics forward. Not worrying about changing the minds of the old guard, but just letting them disappear and waiting for a new generation to come in with new ideas. Something like that. So how do you test that idea? So it's important to realize that Max Planck was retalking really about the setting of um, what we call paradigm shifts in science, really scientific revolutions. Um, and so we can we can study history and we can study big events, but sh- big epochal shifts in science, such as um, evolutionary biology or uh, quantum physics or something of that nature. But it's you know there are very few of those events. So in some mm. sense, if you just study scientific revolutions, you are going to be in the realm of um, very interesting storytelling. <laughs> Not a lot of data. Not a lot of data. Uh, and so what we wanted to do in this paper is to bring Planck's principle and to test Planck's principle in a setting that you might call um, normal science. That is sort of the regular day-to-day job of scientists of sort of pushing science forward, but within a paradigm that is more or less settled, more or less accepted. Um, and so that potentially could sort of bring the opportunity to gather sort of a large sample of, of, of data to actually see, um, to actually test the idea, or at least the implication of the idea. And specifically what we wanted to see is what happens um, to, to scientific fields when a luminary uh, within that field passes away prematurely. Hmm. So how many cases like that are you able to find? I mean, you know, you say there's maybe half a dozen uh, paradigm shifts that you could study, but how many cases where you've got a superstar scientist in a field who passes away early can you actually find to, to study? So in our paper, we have 452. Wow. 452 um, leading academic life scientists over a period of about 30 years. Um, and they're active in many, th- in many subfields, about 3,000 plus subfields starts to make you wonder if you actually want to be a superstar scientist. (laughs) (laughs) 
Right. Well, so I'll, I'll, you know, it's 452 out of a very large universe of thousands and thousands of scientists. Good to put that into perspective there. So Pierre Azoulay, uh, you took these uh, 452 cases of kind of eminent superstar scientists who then passed away prematurely and, and looked at what happened to their subfield of science. What did you find? Did, did you see paradigm shifts taking place in the wake of their deaths? So we didn't find paradigm shifts. What we found is that those subfields appeared to expand modestly after they passed away versus before. Hmm. But the real aha moment is when we looked at uh, the kinds of authors that were responsible for this modest expansion. And we, uh, in some sense, parsed the activity uh, in those subfields by separating the activity that came from former co-authors of the stars, former collaborators, versus um, the activity that came from newcomers to the field, or at least people, I shouldn't say newcomers, but people who had not collaborated with the star while he or she was alive. And there was sort of a very sharp contrast. In some sense, activity within those subfields by former collaborators of the star decreased markedly, like in a massive way, and that's, in fact, confirming an earlier result of ours that only focused on collaborators. But there's sort of a countervailing tendency, which is that there is, in fact, a lot new entry, uh, meaning a lot of new papers being written in those subfields, but only by authors who are not collaborators of the stars. That's really interesting. So you've got the superstar, but then also uh, a close cadre of, of collaborators. And when that superstar passes away, those leading collaborators also seem to, to fade away and a whole bunch of new people come into that area. That's right. And that's really the new, this is really the part that is new about this paper is to sort of think about um, who are those new people and what were keeping them away while the star was alive. So are you able, from, from your research, to, to pinpoint specific mechanisms or, or ways that the superstar from that position is excluding younger researchers or, or what that actually, you know, what, what is the source of that effect? So uh, to some extent, yes. So here is what we don't find first. We don't find that superstars are actively, you know, engaged in sort of blackballing and literally keeping out proscribing the entry of, of, of scientists. We, we don't see evidence of that, of that direct effect. What we see is both an effect that you, can, uh, you could call an intimidation effect, which is that when you have a field that looks from outside very coherent, like everyone collaborates with one another, everyone agrees on what the questions are, everyone uh, uses the same methodologies, um, then in those, kinds, for those, in those kinds of subfields, there is much less of this post-death entry that we um, observe in general. So those are, in some sense, perceived barriers to entry. But then what we also find is that it is almost possible for star scientists to control their fields from beyond the grave. And they can do that through basically a tight-knit rear guard of close collaborators. So what we find is that when the close collaborators of the star while alive are in positions of power, so for example, they sit on 
uh, funding committees at the National Institute of Health, or um, there are editorials of major journals in those fields, then there is also less of this post-death entry that we observe in general. So um, there, are barriers, there are barriers to entry in science. They, are both, um, they both exist sort of in the eye of the beholder, but there are also some that are probably real and tangible. So the first thing uh, that we try to do is to think about um, who are those non-collaborators? Because if you think about what it means to not collaborate with the star, it might have meant that you were um, sort of a competitor um, of the star while she was alive. Um, and then when she passed away, then in some sense you, uh, you inherited the mantle of leadership in the field. Uh, but in fact, that's not what we find at all. We find that those non-collaborators are new entrants to the field. There are people who were not active in the field before, who now enter it in pretty short order after the passing of the superstar. And Pierre Azoulay, I, I appreciate your use of the feminine pronoun there, that these superstars could be any gender. But in fact, you found that 90% of these star scientists were male. What about those newcomers? Um, those newcomers are not disproportionately, disproportionately male or female. They are sort of in the proportion of that in the same proportion that you sort of observe in the labor market, which is, you know, they are disproportionately male. But in fact, that proportion changes over time, um, because while when our study begins in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, um, the labor market, the scientific labor market is overwhelmingly male dominated. Uh, by the 2000s, the, the proportions have sort of evened out um, very, very significantly. So you've got an influx of researchers from other fields. Uh, I don't know, are they closely related fields, completely disparate fields? Are we talking about, you know, the physicist who came in and took up questions in genetics? Or, or is this just, you know, the, the corn geneticists take over the, the tobacco genetics research or something like that? It's probably more of the latter. Our study is limited to the life sciences, broadly construed. So we're not talking about people who are coming literally from left field. <laughs> but, um, you know, they were sufficiently far afield that we couldn't observe them before in our data. Well, Pierre Azoulay, that kind of raises a question about, you know, part of what you had to do was actually define what is a subfield of science. And... Uh, I think about this kind of like an analogy with an old car. If you've replaced every part in the car, is it still the same car? If the uh, star scientist and the core collaborators that kind of defined that field have faded away and a whole new group of people have come into that field, is it really still the same field? Oh, it may be in, a, in the eye of the beholder, but here we are fortunately helped by the data that is uh, systematically um, harvested and made available by the National Library of Medicine. So those are literally your tax dollars at work. The National Library of Medicine not only indexes the entire biomedical literature, but also tags every article with keywords, very detailed keywords. Uh, and in fact, professional coders uh, affix those keywords to all those articles. And so that enabled us to actually delineate subfields. So we consider that an article is intellectually related to another article because in some sense they overlap a lot in terms of the keywords that they use. So mm -hmm. what we're saying about those newcomers in some sense is that 
um, they publish a lot of papers that in some sense overlap with the keywords of the star, much more so after the star has died than before. Hmm. So what is then the total impact? And this is something that you looked at in this new study. What is the total impact on the, the kind of vitality, the actual activity in that field of science after that person passes away? Do you have newcomers in but not the, the same, you know, maybe level of activity and impact? Or, or does, it, does it maintain that vitality? So that's what's really interesting. It's not just that there are slightly more papers being written, but that those papers being written are actually more important. Mm. meaning they will actually have in the future more impact. They will be highly cited. They are disproportionately likely to be highly cited. So this is not sort of marginal fluff that gets added to the field. Those are actually contributions that we should care about. Well, Pierre Azoulay, as an economist, I wonder what is it about this process of science and understanding how scientific advancement happens that is of interest from an economic perspective? But I think that economists are really interested in what makes science uh, work or not work because we think of science as um, one of the key ingredients for economic growth. And so to the extent that we can improve the institutions of science, we might think that this could actually have long-term very positive effect on our well-being. And probably nowhere is this more so than in the setting of uh, you know, biomedical research. And are there aspects of what you have found about what, as we've said, is actually a very rare case where uh, an eminent scientist in a particular field passes away prematurely? Uh, is there anything about what we now know about that rare case that can better help us understand or even uh, promote scientific advancement in the more common and obviously desirable case where it's, it, you don't have a, an eminent scientist passing away prematurely? I think potentially, I, wanna, I don't want to take it too far. So the implication of our research is not that we should start, you know, randomly off eminent scientists to hasten scientific progress. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to, definitely not going to promote that idea. But, um, but at the same time, what our results um, imply is that superstars once safely ensconced at the top of their field may be overstaying their welcome a bit. They might build a rear guard of, you know, like-minded researchers, and they could engage in a variety of gatekeeping activities, basically filtering the ideas, filtering out the ideas that they feel doesn't fit their particular view of where the field ought to go. And if you think about it, in fact, this, this power of agenda setting, of deciding where the field should go, that's one of the big prize in science, you know, like one reason you could think of what motivates scientists, right? So one reason might be, you know, getting a Nobel Prize, but sort of short of that, you know, being in a situation where you can have a deep intellectual impact on an area of inquiry, that's part of the reason why you wake up every day. So if I think about our superstars, you know, they probably did a lot of great things to hoist themselves, you know, to the frontier and to, to, to see themselves in this situation. The problem is sort of once you are now at the top of the mountain, um, do you stop seeing or valuing maybe ideas that um, sort of rub you the wrong way or, you know, make different assumptions about how the world works, uh, do not work with the same sort of methodologies, uh, do not take the exactly the same things for granted? Um, and does this have in turn 
um, sort of an implication for how fast uh, the scientific enterprise can sort of move forward. And so we think that potentially the answer is yes. And so, you know, we want to be sort of very, it, it's a little bit hazardous to move from our results to policy implications, but certainly it doesn't seem out of order to think about ways in which we can open things up a little bit more so that, in particular, younger scholars maybe can make their mark earlier than they would be, than they would be able to otherwise because they are less dependent. That's Pierre Azoulay. He is the International Programs Professor of Management at MIT's Sloan School of Management and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Thank you so much. Thank you. Living Lab Radio continues after a break. <laughs> 